three words you're never going to hear me say very often. I am freezing. Is there any chance we could turn the stage one off? You never. You just keep waiting, buddy. You hold out for that one. Keep praying. Hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, today's Palm Sunday. This is the day that the church has commemorated the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as he entered into the last week of his earthly ministry before the cross. I'm really grateful for the kids and, and for Robin, for Susan, for putting all that together, and Vicky, putting all these things together, Misty. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to, to bring that to mind and keep that uh, foremost in our thinking, the, the exaltation of Jesus as king. And while I'm not going to be doing a a teaching specifically on that subject this morning for Palm Sunday, we'll be in the range thematically uh, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, Next week is Easter, so we're going to be doing some different things at that time, so we'll be skipping our study in the Gospel of John. So I just kind of felt like I'd like to keep at this uh, for now uh, in our study today. Around 150 A.D., uh, Claudius Ptolemy wrote his planetary hypothesis where he asserted, based on his observations, that the Earth was the center of the universe and that all the planets and everything rotated around the Earth. Um, a thousand years later, Nicholas Copernicus countered that theory with what we now call heliocentrism, which states that all of the planets in our solar system orbit around the sun. The sun is the center and everything moves around that. Galileo picked up on that idea and championed it. But in the 1600s, that was a very scandalous notion. And it actually got him in hot water with the church, capital C church, meaning the, the accepted expression of the church within the world at that time. And an inquisition was held, and they banned his work about heliocentrism and placed him under house arrest, and he remained under house arrest uh, for the rest of his life. Why, we may wonder. Well, because his theory, in their eyes, contradicted Scripture, which says that God set the earth on foundations and shall not be moved, which, of course, is an absurd way, albeit still prevalent, uh, way of reading Scripture. Just ask a flat earther why they believe what they believe, and you'll find out. The fact is, humans really like the idea that we are the center of everything. (laughs) And everything rotates around us, especially in microcosm. It's just natural to assume on an individual level, that everything and everyone orbits around us and our will and our ego and self-interest. And we're going to find in our text today that such is not the case. (laughs) I know, I'm sorry. I hate to, to break it to you, but we're going to discover that in God's order of things, everything revolves around the sun, S O N. We're coming back to our study in the Gospel of John. If you've got a way of following along, either a Bible or a Bible app, if you'll find your way to John chapter 3, please. Last week we read about Jesus' famous encounter with Nicodemus, and Janelle did a great job of, of teaching that. <laughs> Digging into that text and looking at these kind of complex things that Jesus was saying and how it relates to a new life, a new creation that's coming into this world through Jesus. 
Today we're going to finish up the chapter in our narrative and we're going to return to John the Baptist, the one who kind of launched this whole thing for us. Now, back, it's starting in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, and I think still on your bulletins, you still should have a little uh, breakdown uh, uh, on the back of the bulletin of uh, how this works. Is it there or not? Is it gone? Do we still have it? Okay, so it's starting in chapter 2, the thematic trend of replacement started. And this is where we're at. We're still looking at this concept of replacement, replacing water with wine, replacing the temple of stone with a living temple of Jesus. And last week we read about replacing a dead life with a new birth. Now today we're going to see another replacement where we replace ourselves at the center of our universe with Jesus who is the center. So if you're there in John chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 22. It says, Then Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and went to the Judean countryside. Uh, and I think that should actually have probably been part of last week's teaching. And then we come into this one. This is where the next section starts with this sentence. Jesus spent some time with them there baptizing people. At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. There's a bunch of springs up in northern Israel there. Uh, And people kept coming to him for baptism. Here you'll notice in parentheses, John, the author, leans over to whisper to us, this was before John was thrown into prison. All right. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Judaic leader over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi... The man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people, and everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. John replied, No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you. I'm not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. It's the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I'm filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Okay, well, it's hard to locate this uh, exactly when this took place chronologically. Clearly, it's while John the Baptist is still alive. And we know that that was earlier than when Jesus went to the temple again I believe this is all meant to fit together thematically instead of trying to force it into a chronological order. Jesus' ministry began with John the Baptist's endorsement, and now we come back to John the Baptist with our first hint of controversy, which will expand exponentially as we go. John the author may have written this section to address people who were still following John the Baptist's cause, which they were still around at the time of this writing. They were still ardent followers of of John the Baptist. But the ideas that he's communicating here are still very applicable to us as 21st century American Christians. Now, the narrative provides the setting for us out in the Judean countryside. And as we take in the scene, we see that an argument is happening between two people. And because of the way that John wrote this, they're out of earshot. So we can tell that they're arguing, but we can't make out the details of their conversation. So we look to John, the author, and we say, what are they fighting about? And he just kind of shrugs and says, "Ah, they're arguing about purification rituals. And he walks away. And, of course, we've got a lot more questions about this, but John doesn't seem to care to answer them. So we're thinking, well, what about purification? Like, what about ceremonial cleansing? This is puzzling because John's very precise 
about what he includes in his gospel account. So we're forced here to, to stop and ponder this for a minute. What was this all about? What's this obscure vignette trying to tell us? Remember that baptism itself was controversial. Back in chapter 1, the Jewish leaders wanted to know why John was doing this. It was a ritual. This ritual of baptism was something that was within Judaism, but it was reserved for Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. So, you know, this was and there was an insulting nature to this of having Jewish people perform that rite uh, as though they were supposed to now come into a true or a real Judaism. The, The insult of that seems to be obvious on the surface of it. It'd be like telling a soldier coming back from overseas in a foreign war that he's got to take a citizenship class before he can become uh, an American again. I mean, the whole thing is loaded with offense, with offensive uh, uh, controversy all over it. So an unnamed Jewish leader is arguing with John the Baptist's disciple about this practice, this what, what they're calling ceremonial cleansing. And it provides a connecting point then between Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and this scene. It's about misunderstanding God's intent for new beginnings. This is not about stacking up the old thing and making sure that it's, it, it's in place. This is about something new coming on the world, Some, a new world emerging here with, within this. It's new beginnings. So in other words, John the author is about to inform us some more about this new life and the nature of this new life that, that Jesus the Messiah is bringing into this world. And then we shift our attention then back to John the Baptist's disciples and what they have to say. So what are they saying to them? They're going, Rabbi, this guy, you called him the Lamb of God, and, and he's encroaching on our ministry. He's baptizing people too. We started this whole thing, and now everybody's going to his meetings instead of ours. And, and the likes on our page are way down from where they used to be. Now, we're going to find out in the next chapter, Jesus himself was not baptizing anybody, but he and his disciples seem to be carrying on the same controversial practice of indicating something new is coming. Something brand new is about to break forth in this world. It's this new life for old. And John the Baptist's response to his disciples' complaint about encroachment is awesome. You can actually hear him smile through the text on these on these pages. It's all good, he says. <laughs> you know, they're all upset. They're distressed about what's happening. And he says it's fine. Everything that we've received, we've received from God. So it's his stuff to manage, not ours. Our ministries, our calling, that's that's God's gift. He's the one in charge of that. In fact, John even reinforces, I told you guys plainly, I'm not the Messiah. I'm just here setting up the party for his arrival. And then he goes back to this beautiful bride uh, wedding motif again, this joy-filled, hopeful picture of a union between heaven and earth. John the Baptist says, I'm like the best man. I'm not bummed because I'm not the groom. I'm stoked that this wedding is even taking place, that heaven and earth are being reunited through through the Messiah. And then he makes this statement that just rings like a bell. He, Jesus, must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. And it's such a powerful statement. This one sentence has so many layers of meaning to it. 
Like right on the the surface, we realize that Jesus identified John the Baptist as the last of the Old Testament prophets. So even there, we can almost see this replacement taking place, the new covenant emerging and the old covenant uh, declining. And then and, and then we also know it was unbeknownst to John, but he's going to be arrested shortly after and and face his own demise. He'll be executed. So we almost see that sense of replacement there. Those are relevant to the gospel as a whole, but there's an even more intense element to this statement. It sets the direction for the whole church. It, it's a it's a it's a baseline. It's a level by which we're able to begin to measure uh, uh, and, and test how true our personal motives are in ministry or just in life compared to what it is that this new life is supposed to be. As many translations put it, he must increase and I must decrease. And it pictures the invasion of the kingdom of God into our lives Not only just this world, but it begins here in our lives. He must increase and I must decrease. It's the kingdom of God. It's the overarching focus of God's kingdom and God's intent and the purpose that we have in our lives. John the Baptist could see what his disciples couldn't see yet. That the kingdom of God is breaking into our world. Jesus as Savior changes everything. Everything's about to change. And the reality of the kingdom of God present in our lives alters what had been the normal dynamics of existence and identity. How it is that we find our sense of identity and wholeness. John says he needs to become greater and larger in my life. And as he does, something changes for me. I no longer need what I may have needed before. The Son of God becomes the center of my universe, and I find myself content in his orbit. I think what we discern from this is that when the reality of Jesus increases, takes center place, In our lives, our need for ego gratification diminishes. John was at the height of his ministry. I mean, think about who it is that's saying this stuff. He's at the height of his ministry. He was far more popular than Jesus in the early stages of of his ministry. Everyone was coming to hear his message. He was experiencing amazing growth uh, with the numbers of disciples who were following him and his teaching. He was all the buzz. He was everything you would call a, a celebrity pastor to be. He was Everybody was paying attention to him, following him on Instagram. He was the best. Those are circumstances that would make it very easy for a human being to start feeding off of his own ego, trying to identify his identity with what appears to be his successes. Oh, yeah, I did put this together. It's pretty good. The desire for recognition, listen, that is a universally human pursuit. It's just part of our human drive after the fall. Almost everyone would like to be important on some level, at the very least be acknowledged for some contribution that or success that we've made or that we've had. Ever since the fall, when this world went wrong and humanity fell from our original purpose to be image bearers of God into this world, 
that drive for recognition became all important. Ego, ego ruled our hearts. Ego rules this world. Even good deeds become susceptible to poisoning because of an over-eager desire to gain credit or, or self-acclaim. We call it virtue signaling in our present culture. That desire to make sure that everyone knows we're doing something right. And worse, ego in control of things tends to be ruthless. History is covered in the wreckage from the storms that ego has produced by people who reach for greatness at any cost to their fellow human beings or any cost to this earth. But for most of us, probably all of us, we've grown up desiring our own way, our own will, our own recognition for what it is that we've accomplished. And yet here's John the Baptist with all the markings of success all around him, smiling, actually stoked that things seem to be going the opposite direction of what is normally perceived as successful. And it's all because he believes that Jesus is the answer to all of his hopes. And he believes that Jesus' plan is better than his own. And there's the key. John's submission to God's plan and Christ's reality produced a real joy in him that's expressed in what he says, which freed him then from some of life's greatest bondages. I don't know that we ever think of it like this uh, enough. Our focus on Christ, his plan, his purpose, his values, and our expression of them will actually release us from the incessant need to have our ego placated. And it is an incessant need. It really is. Now listen, look, look, this is all great stuff to sit around on a Sunday morning and talk about. It even kind of even sounds poetic. You know, he must increase, I must decrease. And it sounds great and all. But the actuality of the challenge of living this out in our daily lives, this is tough. And especially like, you know, Maybe you find yourself in in situations where life is pressing in. It's difficult. And suddenly here's this guy up here saying, yeah, ego's the problem. And, oh, I don't know. I feel pretty bad already. I don't know. But listen, we can think about this. We know know the challenge of this. Just the moment someone else takes credit for some idea that we came up with is one of those moments that we can see with crystal clarity where it is ego reigns in our lives, or just how much Jesus has increased and our ego has decreased, right? And think about that, seriously. Have you ever had an idea that somebody else takes credit for and everybody's praising them and you're like, what a minute? We think that gratifying our ego is what we really want. Otherwise, I'm diminished, right? It's the only way of protecting my dignity and my personhood. But it's actually a source of great discomfort and stress in our lives because, and listen, here's why it's stressful. Because nobody, and I mean nobody, understands just how awesome I am (laughs) and, and calls it out and recognizes it like they should. All of us are in that same boat. Nobody recognizes how great we are. 
When, 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 when we open the door or hold the door open for somebody who's going into the store and they walk through without even so much as a nod or anything like that, and immediately there's this, well, not even a slightest acknowledgement that I am one of the greatest people in the world. I did this for another human being. This is a fallen human tendency. So what John is doing here does not come naturally. This doesn't mean that John was elevated in some spot that, you know, maybe we'll attain to. No, John was just like you and I. So this has to be intentional. Intentional humility. Intentionally transferring all that desire for glory and, and, and recognition, transferring all of that to Christ. And see, it's the same energies involved, but it's just redirected in a different way. Now, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean intentional human humility means that we're adopting a, an, an artificial sense of low self-esteem. You know, Janelle pointed that out last week. We're not walking around with our heads down. I'm no good anyway or anything like that. Because always going on and on, about how terrible we are or what a failure we are. It's just a roundabout way of keeping all the attention right back here. No, just realizing, like John did, that anything we have, any achievement, any resource, any good thing that is present in our lives comes from God for His purposes. And it takes practice. This isn't, you know, this isn't Rob up here saying, hey, you know, tomorrow you should wake up and have this together. This takes practice. This is an intentional pursuit. Jesus said, if we're going to follow him, what are we taking up every day? Taking up a cross. We're not, you know, taking up a mirror. We're not taking up a selfie stick. We're taking up a, a cross. And it's a practice. It takes time. This doesn't just come naturally. We have to form new habits. But I'm telling you, if we can form those new habits, the freedom found in those new habits is staggering. We find ourselves no longer slaves to ego. Our need for ego gratification then gets replaced with a, a healthy sense of self-worth, self-worth based on God's love for us. We don't have to continually have our ego stroked because, as we heard last week, we know that we're loved by God. That's such a contented place to be. It's such a healthy way to live. So that no matter what anyone else says, no matter what happens around me, I know I'm loved by God. Yeah, but Rob, you don't do this very well. I know. And I'm loved by God. I don't have to try to prove that to you. Nor do you have to try to prove it to me. His heart is the one that matters. When Christ's will, his purposes, his values increase in our focus, that's a commitment that we make in our lives, a determination. Then we get released from the bondage of the continual frustration of not having our ego taken care of the way we really want it to be taken care of. Because as I said, nobody does it right. (laughs) Not like I want it done. But when it comes to God's love, and his love for me, and the realization that his love for me transcends any performance on my part, whew, that's an amazing place to live from. Well, okay, the narrative goes on. Verse 31. 
He has come from above. Talking about Jesus. Jesus has come from above and is greater than anyone else. We are of the earth and we speak of earthly things. But he has come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he's seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by the Son. He speaks God's word, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves his Son, and he's put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. All right, well, the the NLT puts this section in quotation marks, um, which makes it sound like John the Baptist is saying these things, but most scholars lean towards the idea that this is now John the author adding commentary to the, the scene we just saw. Uh, of his events. It, you know, it's hard to tell for sure. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm persuaded to think this is John the author's commentary on this, but what he's laying out here is a contrast between what's earthbound and what comes from God's realm, which we, dis- which we describe as heaven. Heaven is God's realm, where God orders things and is in control. This, what is earthbound is, is bound by the lim- limitations of this temporal reality. But the horizons of possibilities are wide open from heaven's perspective, from the perspective of God and his realm. It's it's kind of a dense section there. There's a lot layered in there. But I love the way the message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible, kind of cuts through this. In verses 35 and 36, it reads, The Father loves the Son extravagantly. He turned everything over to him so he could give it away. A lavish distribution of gifts. That's why whoever accepts and trusts the Son gets in on everything, life complete and forever. And again, we have this increase-decrease theme happening here. We can spend our lives trying to find all the stuff on this earth that we think is going to finally satisfy us. Or we can look to the Son from heaven and find true contentment that isn't dependent on the stuff of this earth or the circumstances that we're in. And what I see here is that, that when the reality of Jesus becomes center in our, in our focus, in our understanding of life, we decrease our need for temporal affirmation. Temporal affirmation being this stuff here in this world that we will try to pile around ourselves to reinforce our sense of security or wholeness. All this stuff we grasp for all the time. We spend our lives looking for a strong social network and stable income and lots of material possessions because we see in those things some slim hope of stability in this really unstable world. But they never really provide what we're looking for, never fully. I mean, relationships break down, economies tilt, possessions fall apart, especially from Ikea. Uh, we We instinctively know that we need something more. We know that. We intuit that. There's got to be more than this. You read so many interviews with people who've attained everything, actors and, and you know, wealthy people, and the, the story's always the same. It doesn't satisfy. They asked Rockefeller at the height of his wealth, what, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. It never fully satisfied. It never provides what we're looking for. 
John tells us what it is. Whoever accepts and trusts the Son gets in on everything. Life, complete and forever. A whole and satisfied life that has a hope in eternity. When the reality of Jesus comes to the forefront of our focus as we live our daily lives, our demand, our need for all of those temporal affirmations start to fade. We're not as dependent on them. They begin to, to recede in, in, element, in, in, in regard to their, their priority in our experiences. We get released from the bondage of, of FOMO. The fear of, of missing out, that's, a, that's been a huge thing for a while now. There's whole fields of research presently are being conducted about our present culture's anxiety, which is heightened by social media, where we're fed this constant stream of other people's daily experiences, and we start the process of comparing ourselves to everybody else's experiences and what's going on with them. And, of course, there's a lot of filters on those things. And so there's this sense that, wow, you know, they don't have a wrinkle on their face. <laughs> uh, there's all these different ways in which we begin to compare ourselves to what it is that we're seeing on that screen. And we're constantly under this sense of anxiety. This, this has been going on for years now. There was a time when this was a new trend. We weren't sure. This has been happening for years. We are being molded to seek the temporal affirmations of heart and thumb emojis all around us. So what can be done? What do we do? Like, this is the culture we live in. What are we supposed to do? We can intentionally focus on the reality of Christ in this world, of His work, of His kingdom, and our participation in this world-changing plan that He has. We can remember that the only heart that matters is Christ's heart towards us, expressed in His love for us, in what the, the littlest among us spoke this morning, that God so loved this world, He gave His one and only Son, to find our contentment, our wholeness, our drive, our purpose in that, in that reality. We can, we can find contentment in the knowledge that our lives are more significant to God than what restaurant we ate at or what kind of house we live in or, or what car we buy. We are children of God whom He loves. And nothing is ever going to change that. Nothing is going to change that. We can find purpose in Christ's purposes to make a difference in this broken world, to bring order where there's chaos in whatever way that it presents itself to us, to be able to show love to the unlovely. Every one of us is a minister of God's kingdom. We come here and we listen to these things, and that's all great, and I'm all for it, but it's more than just that. We leave here, we now move into that mission field where we are representatives of this unthinkable love demonstrated for the human race. Every one of us is significant and our lives have, have great purpose. We just have to see everything from the right perspective. We gotta move beyond. We gotta transcend the brokenness of this chaotic plane. And see with Christ as the center of everything what life is like when it orbits Him. 
when the reality of Christ in our lives increases in our understanding of how it is that we even pursue life in our understanding of our own identity, our need for all of those temporal affirmations begins to decrease. And we can go on with the mission of hand at, at hand to share this love that we've experienced with others in this chaotic world. We can experience real joy and contentment regardless of what our circumstances might be. And listen, I know it's it's easy for, you know, us on Sunday morning to you know, to agree with that. Amen. That's right, Rob. I I'm with you. And I mean it when I'm saying it, but I know, I know the reality of, of life in this broken place, and it's hard to keep our focus there. But that's where we come back to intentionality. And so, okay, so we're, we're here today, right? We're, we're focused on it today. Yes, Jesus is center, and if I have him at center and I recognize that I'm loved by him, I'm not going to need these other things that everybody seems so desperate for. That's great. Now, tomorrow morning you're going to wake up. <laughs> <laughs> and all kinds of things are going to be going stupid. Oh, other kids in here. I shouldn't. I, I was told that I'm not supposed to say stupid anymore. So, pretend I didn't say stupid. Uh, <laughs> sideways, sideways. There we go. So, uh, a lot of things are going to go sideways in a very stupid way. Wait, what? <laughs> but, but if we can intentionally remember, like. Like, say it out loud. Like, go to the mirror in the bathroom. It sounds nuts. People will look at you and they'll think you're nuts. Happily, nobody's discovered me yet as I'm in the bathroom saying, you are loved by God. doesn't matter what's happening around here. You are loved by God. He loves you. Remind yourself of that. That is the center of your universe. If that becomes center, these other things become manageable. And we begin to navigate in healthy and sane ways through this life. Right on? All right, very cool. Why don't you stand with me, if you will, please. Father, we're grateful to you for your word. What, uh, what an incredible thing that has been passed down to us thousands of years in the making. And yet here we, we gather together, 21st century Americans, and able to read this document from so long ago, from so many different cultures, and, and find ourselves hearing from you, hearing from your heart. I thank you for that, Father. And what it is that you communicate through this word that we've read today, as we've presented ourselves before it, I pray that you, by your Spirit, reinforce it. Because, Father, the letter of the Word, without your Spirit, it's not going to lead to the life we need. So I pray, right now, Holy Spirit, come and awaken our hearts to the realization of your love for us. Awaken our hearts to the hope we have in the world that's coming about because of Messiah Jesus. Awaken our hearts to the reality of our value that isn't dependent on this broken world system or the people in our lives, but dependent solely on the fact that you so loved us, you gave your one and only Son for us. Father, help us make that commitment today 
to live each day with that forefront in our thinking. To when we see ourselves in the mirror or on social media or any other place, that we see ourselves as loved by God, loved as your children. I pray that's true for each and every one of us here, Father. Reinforce that in our lives and help us then be your witnesses of the glory that comes through trusting and believing in you. I pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.